Welcome to Financial Repression Authority's Roundtable Insight, where the best fund managers, economists, and industry leaders discuss the key investment issues and challenges in the current macroeconomic environment. Hi, welcome to FRA's Roundtable Insight. This is Richard Benuli. Today we have Charles Hugh Smith, author, leading global finance blogger, and America's philosopher, we call him. He's the author of several books on our economy and society, including A Radically Beneficial World, Automation, Technology, and Creating Jobs for All, Resistance, Revolution, Liberation, A Model for Positive Change, and The Nearly Free University in the Emerging Economy. His blog of twominds.com has logged uh, millions of page views and is very high number seven uh, on CNBC's top alternative finance sites. Um, His recent book, is called Pathfinding Our Destiny, Preventing the Final Fall of Our Democratic Republic. Welcome, Charles. Thank you, Richard. Uh, I'm always impressed by, uh, by your lead-in, um, and I, I don't know if I uh, really uh, match those, those high expectations, but um, I think we've got a great topic today, and oh, no, we'll try to add some value. Always meet and exceed the expectations. Your, your work is phenomenal. And so today, I thought we'd do a discussion on bringing together a number of pieces that you've written about uh, on different types of trends that are happening uh, in the economy, in the financial markets, uh, in our society as a whole, and uh, how, how it all gets uh, dotted together. What, what are the linkages between them, uh, and where is this all going? Um, so we, we have uh, a number of topics uh, to discuss in this regard, uh, but just for, from at the base, from the beginning, uh, we see demographics challenges and debt exhaustion as two of the, the key trends happening. Can you elaborate on that based on your recent writings? Yes, and um, just as kind of our, our context, uh, you know, that, that we're talking about here is demographics are obviously sort of like long wave or long cycles. In other words, we, you know, the workforce can only go up or down, you know, by so much, given that the people who are entering the workforce have, were born 20 years ago. So, you know, it's, it's not something like uh, debt or GDP or something that it's not a statistic that's a financial statistic that can be manipulated or massaged. It's like, you know, demographics define the society and the economy um, in a fundamental way. And so what, um, what people like Chris Hamilton, um, who's currently uh, writing some great work on um, demographics and the economy, and um, people like Martin Armstrong and Peter Turchin, people with a, a long historical view, um, th- they all point to uh, basically one issue, which is Promises that are made by the government to the people in in boom times, um, they cannot be met, you know, once um, once the situation starts stagnating. In other words, boom times go to low growth or slow growth or no growth, right? Because the workforce that's that's uh, that has shrunk and either due to a reduced reduced jobs or just the, the reduction in the workforce in terms of age is that workforce is too small to support 
um, all the promises that were made to the pensioners and to um, the government's other programs. And so this shortfall in, in uh, wages and profits that can be taxed, that forces the government into making some sort of um, adjustment or, or attempt to fill in the gap between what, what's actually affordable and what was promised. And of course, there's great political pressure to fulfill what was promised. So throughout history, governments have always tried to borrow money from the future in order to meet their obligations today, right? And, and that can work in a very short, uh, uh, short time frame. Like if you need to borrow money from next year and, um, and your tax revenues are going up next year, then, you know, borrowing a little bit from the future will be okay. But if your tax revenues and your, your overall economic uh, picture is not growing as fast as your debt, then eventually what happens is where we are now, right? That the debt is growing far faster than um, the ability to, to service that debt. And so um, I call this debt exhaustion. Some people call it debt saturation. Um, and uh, so what, what it means is then, then the government and the people start demanding even more adjustments. And um, as a result of the visit, it becomes visible that we can't meet the promises that have been made. So then, then the people start demanding that um, the government borrow more money and distribute it as universal basic income or some other kinds of programs. And the government starts looking at um, its trading partners and, and going, well, we need to get some more money out of, out of trade. So then, then, then we have tariffs and trade wars. And I, I think what, what the linkage to me is every uh, so-called solution to the problem that we no longer have the resources necessary to fulfill the promises that were made in boom times. Every one of those so-called solutions creates even more of a problem. And it usually ends up being expressed in debt and, and social or uh, global discord. Yes, and that's a, a theme there where there's a continuous feedback loop uh, with government getting into more and more debt, uh, trying to solve uh, these challenges that happen, uh, even Illinois the other day, uh, as, as they're going into more debt with all kinds of crises, pension crises. Uh, what is their solution? Well, let's create some more debt and, uh, you know, to try to buy some more time. So, uh, so it's a continuous cycle, and, and more and more we get to this debt exhaustion um, phenomenon as, as you describe it. And then that's also uh, all together with demographic challenges leading to, to uh, essentially a crisis in government. And that's what uh, Martin Armstrong has been talking about a lot uh, recently as we go into uh, uh, 2020 in particular, where he sees um, a crisis in government, uh, with government being the problem, uh, more of an, a growing awareness that government is the problem. Uh, alongside that would be a loss of confidence in government and government institutions. Your thoughts? Right. Uh, excellent. Uh, that's, that's certainly a, a, a good description of what we're seeing already. And um, I would just uh, want to add that one of the so-called solutions that that the central state has attempted uh, recently, which is uh, it 
which is manifested in the central bank policies as opposed to uh, the the treasury uh, or fiscal spending. The central banks uh, of the major economies have attempted to create new growth, right, or spark growth in a stagnant economy by uh, financial oppression, right, by forcing capital into risk assets and and um, generating or inflating these 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 asset bubbles, which generate a lot of you know basically phony wealth, right? I mean, the house is not providing any more. Uh, any more utility value than it was before, but it was once worth $150,000 and now it's worth $900,000. Um, some of that is, you know, supply and demand and so on, but a lot of it is, is phony uh, wealth that was created by financial repression. And so those um, people who own the assets that are, have been heavily inflated, of course, have benefited greatly. And, um, the people who don't own those assets have not benefited from those policies, right? And so we know that it's a fact that roughly the top 10% of U.S. households own 90% of all financial and capital assets. And so and uh, that concentration goes up uh, to where, um, you know, roughly 5% of the households own something like 80% of, of the wealth in the U.S. And I think that's uh, paralleled in a lot of nations, Um uh, especially in, in China, you know, that the, the wealth is generally held by a relatively small percentage of the population. So that wealth inequality, which has been driven by central bank policy, then creates even more social discord because the have-nots look at these policies, which are so blatantly unfair that they favor speculative capital over other kinds of capital investments and over labor. And so then they demand redress Right. Like they, they, uh, so these are the demands for, um, you know, free health care, free higher education, um, debt forgiveness, universal basic income. And then the question becomes, well, how is the government going to pay for these trillions of dollars in, in um, so-called QE for the people? And, uh, you know, those demands, we understand where they come from. Right. In other words, this, the, the financial repression does favor a specific form of speculative capital over all other forms of capital and labor. So it is unfair. <laughs> and so people are responding to that unfairness. But how is the government going to uh, fund that out of a dwindling tax base? Yeah, and another example of that is how those that are close to the money could be banks are able to borrow from central banks uh, at very low rates, 25 basis points, for example, and then turning around and buying uh, bonds paying, uh, say, 3%, so you're getting 275 basis points essentially for free. Um, now, you and I can't do that, but but those that are close uh, to the money, the banks, in particular uh, commercial banks, are able to do that. And then there's, there's a leveraging process as well that goes along with that. So that, that has exacerbated uh, wealth inequality and uh, in income inequality. Yeah, absolutely. And um, there's another mechanism here that since we're talking about, about debt and, and that um, as, as people's um, earned income has stagnated uh, as a generality, at least for the bottom 90%, then they're borrowing more, right? And so we see people borrowing uh, huge amounts of money for you know, higher education, for college 
and for you know vehicles that are now very expensive you know thirty five to fifty thousand is is a, is not an unusual price anymore as well as credit card debt and so this all this debt whether it be public private or corporate is actually sapping the ability of those entities to um, to to save and and invest in the future right because if as more and more of your income goes to servicing debt you have less and less to invest and so depending on debt for like this sort of cheap easy shot of of growth in the present it's actually strangling uh, income and and investment in the future and so where does real wealth arise it arises from increasing productivity that requires massive investment in in um, skills and 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 uh, equipment and uh, other forms of capital so if you if you're basically over borrowing in the present, you know, to, to fund today's promises, you're basically scrangling your economy's future hopes of generating higher productivity because the, the money to invest simply won't be there. It was all, it's all spent on servicing existing debt. And so instead of taking that avenue and uh, the solutions that you've detailed in your current book, Pathfinding Our Destiny, preventing the final fall of our democratic republic, uh, we seem to be on a, on a different path. Um, and that is to, towards populism, polarization, uh, extreme political views in both directions, to the far right, to the far left, uh, extreme type of suggestions like universal basic income, MMT, um, all requiring more, more, uh, Spending and uh, and more debt, as as you mentioned, um, and uh, in particular, we we see uh, now movements to the far left uh, as far as uh, socialism is concerned, with um, the millennial Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, and just recently uh, Bernie Sanders uh, announcing uh, that he'll be running again for president. Your thoughts? Yeah, and and again, I think the the, the core. Uh, dynamic I see is the uh, the policies of central banks have increased uh, wealth and income inequality. That's a reality, right? And so what's our response to that reality? And of course, for people who feel that the, the system no longer works for them, that they've been left behind, then they want some sort of redress. And so when we look at the popularity of, of Bernie Sanders and AOC, um, and the, the, the Green uh, New Deal, these are all attempts to redress this rising wealth and income inequality, right? And that's that's an understandable uh, impulse, right? We, we all understand that. And it's, and it's not a bad impulse in and of itself. It's, it's a matter of how do we reach that goal of leveling the playing field, of redistributing um, opportunity and capital more fairly than it is now. And, and um, so what, what I think we're really facing is how do we start living within our means? And that means um, demanding sacrifices of everybody in the system and, and why there's a lot of uh, resentment in, in, in politically now is people understand intuitively that a certain segment of the population that's been favored by central banks and financial repression they haven't sacrificed anything. They've actually benefited enormously from these policies. 
of asset bubbles and so on and, and huge debt, um, you know, huge accumulations of debt. And, and then it's everybody, the bottom 95% who have, who have had to make the sacrifices with higher inflation, higher debts, stagnating wages, and so on. And so I think we need a, a reset of the system where, where the solutions are not to borrow more through central banks and central governments, right? But more like decentralized, more flexible, more adaptable, more localized solutions that are more like focused on generating opportunities for every, everybody that's participating in the economy and, and trying to find ways to lower costs as opposed to borrowing more money to pay you know, uh, highly inflated costs <laughs> for things like higher education and, and, and healthcare. So I, I think the solution set is to use innovation and, um, and uh, innovative social policies to try to create a more adaptive, flexible, localized, decentralized economy. And I think that a lot of these problems will start melting away um, because it's a lot harder to manipulate um, and, and impose some kind of centralized privilege on a, on a very decentralized system. And so uh, these people, are, uh, the AOCs of the world, of course, are seeing the central government and central bank as the source of the solution, where those of us from an, a little different point of view see them as the source of the problem that will never be solved by borrowing tens of trillions of dollars um, into the future, because that will eventually destroy the currency, and that um, impoverishes everybody, <laughs> rich, poor, yeah. and the middle alike. Exactly. Uh, whether it be you know increasing the size, complexity, and cost of government from the left or from the right, uh, it's basically leading to to similar uh, end results in terms of loss of uh, decline in standard of living. Uh, loss of purchasing power, um, and ultimately capital uh, uh, wealth drain and, and brain drain at the same time. And this has happened many times in history. Um, so, as you mentioned, the um, the answer is more as you've as you've uh, outlined in your in your new book, uh, more of a, of a limited, centralized form of government, more efficient, uh, more uh, you know. Uh, increased efficiency, but at the same time, lower cost of that. Right. That's where, you know, innovation is almost intrinsically deflationary, right? In other words, what was once extremely expensive um, becomes a lot cheaper once it's um, commoditized and, um, and innovations uh, arise in, in, um, in both product lines and service lines. I want to mention real quickly, you know, there's a lot of talk today about, you know, trade and tariffs, right, and trade wars. But, you know, I just want to kind of fit that into the, 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 the puzzle we're assembling here is that, again, as um, the, the economy stagnates, so does the government's revenues, right? And so the government is, is then seeking some um, redress, like some way to, to jumpstart the economy, you know, or get, get more growth. And so... Um, of course, then, then trade comes up because if, if, uh, if it seems that some other nations are taking advantage of your nation, then you want to eliminate that, um, that uh, uh, imbalance, if you will, and, and bring back some of the benefits to your own country, right? And so this is, 
Uh, this is the basis of a lot of ideas about reshoring, um, uh, you know, the um, industrial base back to America, re, re, reshoring manufacturing and so on. And this is understandable. And from the and from the Chinese point of view, they have the same concern. They're afraid that if they lose trade, then their economy will stagnate, and they'll have all the same problems <laughs> that uh, that the older Western powers are facing, because the demographics are not favorable in China either. Uh, in terms of the one-child policy, has created a much smaller workforce than um, than the pensioners who are, uh, you know, um, expecting the government to fund their um, retirement in China. So these are global issues, and that may be partly why we've got um, global discord. Yeah, and I want to mention uh, a, a book that also recently uh, came out called The Prosperity Paradox, How Innovation Can Lift Nations Out of Poverty by Clayton Christensen. Um, it's a fascinating book. I'm looking forward to getting a copy uh, in, in the next few weeks here. But essentially, um, what he suggests is uh, is a better way of um, of approaching uh, innovation, uh, using innovation to to um, help uh, build a framework for economic growth that is based on entrepreneurship and market creating type of innovation. So, so this is his uh, his solution, uh, very very uh, in line with what you're saying in terms of of more uh, decentralized, decentralized uh, form of government and, uh, and being able to apply innovation. And I, I might add also that uh, uh, there is a, the, the new framework today uh, in the economy called Agile uh, is also a, a way to help uh, foster this innovation that is more efficient, uh, lower costing overall for government. So, the application of agile uh, to uh, agile technology to to innovation and this approach uh, that both you and Clayton are mentioning uh, seems to be the the right way to go. Right, right, and um, I guess I would sort of summarize uh, that particular um, aspect of what we're talking about. As there's, you hear a lot of talk now about. Of capitalism has failed, right? And then we hear other defenses of capitalism, and and of course the the root problem is we're using one word to describe two different economic systems, right? And so so-called bad capitalism is what's uh, there's a lot of of, of that that uh, dominates the U.S. economy, what I would call the cartel state economy. In other words, cartels which then can um, raise their prices while reducing the quality and quantity of their services, right? So once you get a quasi-monopoly situation that's enforced by the state, you get bad capitalism. You know, you get pharmaceuticals that there's no competition for, that, that uh, they, they can charge $100,000 a dose and so on. And that's bad capitalism. And, and of course, in, in other uh, situations, bad capitalism includes co uh, crony capitalism, you know, where corruption is uh, rife and where um, uh, the, um, you know, sweetheart deals and uh, soul bids 
poor contracts and so on and so on. This is bad capitalism. It's not really the entrepreneurial capitalism that you um, are describing where, you know, entrepreneurial capitalism is based on a level playing field. You know, everybody follows the same rules and that there's um, open access to capital and labor and there is competition because competition is what keeps people honest and, and it drives innovation, right? If you can just keep raising your prices while producing really poor quality, then you've got no motivation to improve your quality, right? So uh, we've, we've allowed a lot of bad capitalist situations to arise where competition's been stifled or, or uh, snuffed or, or um, you know, and there's lots of mechanisms for doing this, right? You, you raise regulatory barriers so uh, nobody else can uh, afford to compete with you. And, and these kinds of things, and there's a lot of games in, in that that are that involve the central state. And so, um, in other words, I don't think you can get the, the worst forms of capitalism and kleptocracy without a central government to enforce them. So, when we talk about innovation and decentralization and agility, what we really want to see is um, a, a, a very limited form of central government because we. Because if you allow the central government to get that much power, then they can enforce monopolies um, for their cronies. And, and this is what we see in industry after industry. And so um, you, you to, to have a level playing field, you have to decentralize power and capital as well as opportunity. You know? So that's, that's kind of the foundation to, to create an agile entrepreneurial society. So you have to have a level playing field, like enough regulation to make sure that you don't uh, get overwhelmed with uh, a, a monopoly that ends up being enforced by, by the central state. And you want opportunity and opportunity to gain capital, you know, that's uh, broadly distributed. And so a centralized model just may, just really reinforces bad capitalism and a decentralized model reinforces good capitalism. And your final thoughts on, uh, how can we get there uh, is the question is, do you see this has happening um, through a crash and burn type of scenario or is there a better way, uh, uh, you know, sort of a, a, an easier way to get there from point A to point B? Well, I wish there was, yeah. <laughs> but, but Peter, uh, you know, actually, you know, Richard, it's a great question because we've referred to Martin Armstrong and, and uh, I often refer to historian Peter Turchin. Um, and that, you know, when we look back at history, history is not, doesn't have many examples of a easy, uh, peaceful transition from one sort of social economic order to, uh, the next one. And so, uh, history suggests that we're going to have to go through a period of turmoil and discord that will see a reset of the system where um, the system breaks down. And I think what, what we're talking about today is a system where debt will reach levels that are unsustainable and that, that attempts to service that debt and expand that debt will um, destroy the fiat currencies that people depend on. And, and that will be the crisis which enables a reset of the entire system. But it's going to be painful for sure. Oh, and on that note... Uh... Great. Well, we'll end our discussion for today, but that's great insight. Uh, Charles, how can our listeners learn more about your work? Yeah, please visit me at of2minds.com. You can download uh, free chapters of my last couple books. 
and look at my archives and I hope you find some value. Great. Thank you very much, Charles. Okay. Thank you, Richard. The FRA Roundtable Insight Show is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the show each involve their own unique risk factors which are not discussed on the show. Any discussions among the panel participants or responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the panel participants and do not take into consideration the listener's suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Please be advised that you invest or speculate at your own risk. 